Hello and welcome to the How The Fuck podcast. I'm super excited this week to introduce my guest, Rand Fishkin, who most of you will know as the founder of SEO Moz and Moz.com, which he founded back in 2004 with his mum and grew it to about 50 million a year revenue. For those of you who don't know, it's an SEO technology education and community company, which he's recently stepped down in leadership from to start a brand new startup, SparkToro, that launched just this year. It was a perfect time to catch Rand because I got to grill him on all the marketing tactics he's used to launch his company to 18,000 people on the waiting list. I also got the answers to two super valuable questions. What skills should a marketer focus on acquiring at the moment? And what does he see as the untapped opportunity in marketing right now? We also chatted about some SEO stuff, but I really didn't know where to start because Rand almost wrote the book on it. So I tried to ask some more lofty kind of philosophical stuff to capture his industry knowledge. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please leave a rating wherever you're listening to this, because it's really going to help me grow and build the profile so that we can get even more of a diverse range of guests on the show. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ben. My pleasure. So since so you started SEO Moz, this is like the first thing, right? In 2003. It must feel like a long time ago now. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I dropped out of college in 01 and then started working with my mom, Jillian, and, and we at the company that became SEO Moz and then Moz. Yes. Okay. And it's a, what what's the process of starting a company with your mom? What <laughs> the process there? I'm not sure how my mom would, I could back her to have a complementary skill set. Actually, maybe. Yeah, it's a pretty unusual startup founder combination. My mom was already running her marketing agency, had been for 20 years during all the time that my brother and sister and I were like growing up and going to school. My mom had always been working and we'd go to her office after school and hang out there and wait for her to be done with work. And I learned how to use like very early versions of Photoshop and like Illustrator. And, and then I remember my mom brought home Microsoft front page when it first came out in like 1995. And I was learning to use, to build websites and design them. And that is, yeah, how we ended up working together because her clients needed websites and I liked building them. I liked working on the internet. And so we formed this partnership and then, yeah, it didn't go well for a number of years. Financially speaking, went very badly. We went deep into debt, but eventually with, yeah, with SEO Moz, dug ourselves out of that hole. I started this blog to teach people about SEO and learn it myself and share my journey. And that became very popular and attracted a lot of traffic and interest and then speaking invitations and eventually we pivoted into being an SEO software company. What made like that at the beginning, what do you think was the, the thing that made SEO Mars a really successful blog? Was there? I think there were three factors in it. It was not a great blog by any means. You can go back and read those early posts from the very early years, I think even still today. But what you'll see is this is not a great writer. These are not great topics. This is not all that interesting, but there was nowhere else to get information. There were very few places where you could read about SEO on the web. There were very few communities. The blog comments were essentially a community of people who registered, they put up their profile, they had some information about themselves, that the comments and the literal profiles in early SEO Moz would start ranking in Google for people's names. And so people almost use their SEO Moz profile as like a portfolio of their knowledge and contributions to the community. Plenty of people got business that way, which is crazy <laughs> enough because the, the community was relatively popular in a very unpopular niche. At the time, Ben, SEO was viewed as snake oil. It was viewed as black hat. It was viewed with not just trepidation, but 
outright disdain and hatred. Today, if, a, if an SEO story sort of makes it into the mainstream, people are like, oh yeah, sure. Trying to rank in Google, getting your site up there, I get it. But 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, nothing like that. It was just, it was viewed the way, I, I, I can't even think of a profession like sleazy lawyers who chase ambulances, right? Like that kind of thing, yeah. but worse because the, I think the law in a lot of ways still has a lot of professional credibility, but SEO struggled for at least 15, 16 years. It's only in the last four or five years that it's emerged as like a mainstream marketing practice and people don't see it as particularly evil or bad. Do you think that was a result of the tactics used or was it jealousy or was it just not, it wasn't popular yet? I think it was, I think there was like this core viewpoint from a vocal, a small but vocal community of developers, software engineers, website builders, old school marketers and advertisers that attempting to manipulate the rankings of sites in search engines was fundamentally wrong, right? That somehow the algorithms themselves were not to be messed with, that they imbued this sort of core high-level truth over the rankings of, of the internet and that any attempt to manipulate those was fundamentally unethical. Like cheating um, in some way, like you're tricking the algorithms. Yeah, you're tricking the algorithm and therefore you're tricking people and you're not ranking where you're supposed to be. Stop trying to rank higher and get more traffic. That's wrong. Just ignore search engines and do whatever you were going to do on the web. <laughs> and that's the only ethical way to play. It's a very strange philosophy, right? It's super anti-capitalist in a way, an anti-competitive market, an anti-open marketplace. And I don't know, in some ways it speaks to the how the early internet was viewed as this utopia of, I don't know, authenticity. And obviously no one views the internet that way anymore. Yeah, definitely. Even now, like sometimes extremely well SEO optimized websites do get in the way of me searching for something that I want and I come across the worst article about some rubbish. And nowadays <laughs> you're just like, yeah, they're good at SEO. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, true. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I think also, right, one, one of the things that we've all found and Google has obviously gotten way better at this over time is that if lots of people feel that way and they all click on that article, that website, and then they click the back button and choose a different result in Google over time, oftentimes literally in hours or days, that website, that page will disappear from the top rankings being replaced by something that earns, that doesn't have that high pogo sticking rate. They're pretty good at finding out ways that we're doing tricks to take advantage of their algorithm now, I think. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, even if you're using tricks to take advantage of the algorithm, if you're not also solving the searcher's problem, yeah. you, tend, you will not rank for a long period of time, right? You have very short-term rankings if all you've done is manipulate all of the algorithmic inputs, but not solve searchers' problems and make them happy and delighted with your results because people will end up choosing different results in Google and that, that historic data about the choices people make and how they interact and behave on the web and in the search results, that is a primary driver for Google's results these days. And is yeah. that, what are the top drivers of Google's results these days? Is it, the, is it those things, it's like time on page or the amount of clicks or the amount of backlinks that are legit? 
um, almost certainly none of those at that at that level of simplicity. It's all much more complex. The link graph is analyzed by Google in thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of different ways. And certainly having high quality links from good places that are saying right things about you and the context is correct and the content is about the right thing and the recommendation appears sincere and the link sends some degree of actual traffic and yeah, right, like all of these things play into it and, and probably in very complex ways. Google, remember, has shifted over the last decade to be a machine learning first company. And so you are almost certainly getting not individual algorithmic inputs, but analyses that are learned off of behaviors. So when Google sees, for example, oh, lots of people click on whatever, Ben made a crappy spammy website. And it's like, Ben's house of spam.info, not to impure, yeah. I'm sure, excellent content creation skills. But if the spam.info ma manages to manipulate other elements of the rankings and then gets into the top results, Google can see that over time when people click on it, they return back to Google's results and choose a different result. And that tells Google that your website is not solving searchers problems that you're not delighting and making their customers, their users happy. And then they'll see some other website like Ben's house of good content.com. And it's, Oh, okay. I don't know why he has these two websites, but whatever. And, yeah. and, that, and if that website tends to get people searching and clicking on it, visiting, engaging, not returning to Google's results, right? Not being disappointed with what they find. Then Google learns, hey, whatever signals Ben's house of good content has that Ben's house of spam does not have, let's start to prioritize those in the search results. Yeah. And then will machine learn off of the inputs that we see for the one site and not the other. And they can apply that to other sites. Can apply that to other sites. And this is, I'm a couple of years out from the SEO world these days. I, I left Moz a few years ago and started this new company. So I, I'm not going to be able to tell you with as much detail and precision exactly the inputs that are important in these systems. But broadly speaking, this is how Google is operating. It's the same way that Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or Reddit or YouTube learn what content to show us. They're all machine learning off of signals of engagement, user satisfaction, recidivism, people coming back again and again and using it. And this has in the search world, it tends to be very positive. This is a really good thing. In the social world, it has lots of negative externalities because emotionally engaging, usually things that make you really angry and upset and polarizing or partisan, those tend to be the types of content that engage really well on social. But in search, it's, it works really well because it's the content that draws your, that solves your problem. Yeah, it strikes me as something that's very much a long-term game because of those things. You may have the best content, but it takes Google a long time to realize that someone who's been there for 10 years optimizing this one blog post over time is really hard to knock off that top spot when you're a new startup or something like that. Google does have some signals. They have a, a recognition of when, so let's say, for example, in a super simplistic model, let's say that links is the only thing Google cared about. This is just for hypothetical, but if one site has a thousand links and your site only has 10, if tomorrow you gain 
40 or 50 new links, you might actually outrank the site with a thousand links because Google sees that your acceleration rate, it looks like the web is getting very interested in what you're doing right now. And so this is where startups and, and early stage companies and new blogs and new content creators can win even over really big dominant forces. This is something that Google put into place over the last decade to deal with some of the problems of, oh, all that ever ranks number one is Wikipedia, right? Yeah. Because everybody always links to Wikipedia and Wikipedia has all, all of these content signals, et cetera. Google started recognizing, hey, Wikipedia doesn't always delight and satisfy and answer the search query the best of anything out there. So they looked for other ways to do that. And one of those is acceleration rate of the ranking signals. That's smart. I think we're in a lucky position to be Google's incentives aligned with our own incentives for search in that sense. Uh, yeah. In a lot of ways, I think the ranking algorithm works extremely well. And this is one of the reasons Google's so hard to displace because they, they almost exclusively have all of this historical ranking data about what works, what engages people. So if you and I wanted to build a great new search engine, we could go raise a billion dollars from investors and put all the effort and the best minds in the world to work at it. But if we don't have the historical data, we're never going to be able to compete with Google. And as long as that's locked up in Google's servers, there's not a lot anybody else can do. Would you foresee a future where Google search is not the number one place on the internet? Let's see. I think the two most likely scenarios are Google overplays their hand in the political spectrum and loses out in some sort of regulatory capacity. I, I don't know whether it's this administration or future administrations, but someone basically decides, hey, this, you know what, Google is overextending their monopoly power and we need to break them up. I think that's one likely potential scenario. Another one is that some new way of navigating the internet becomes more popular than search, like how search engines overtook yellow pages as the internet emerged. So maybe in the far flung future, there's some new way that newer generations want to discover and pick up information and that becomes a competitive threat to Google and Google doesn't see it coming because they don't see this explosion in the use of a new way of getting data. I think that's possible. It could be something more insular and, and networked and personal based, maybe. So some paradigm shift would have to happen and that they didn't foresee because they didn't buy that company for. This is the other problem is Google has been pretty smart, right? They saw that, oh gosh, hey, lots of people are searching MapQuest. Let's build our own version of MapQuest, Google Maps. Oh, hey, videos are getting popular. Let's buy YouTube. Oh, hey, mobile looks like it could be a threat. Let's buy Android. Hey, we see whatever competition in any sector. We're just going to acquire it before, acquire it or build a clone competitor before it can become a threat. You know, this is one of the things that regulators look at and say, hang on a minute, is that you using your monopoly power to unfairly compete in other sectors? Yeah. And Google's, who, me? Here's millions of dollars for your campaign. Don't do anything to us. <laughs> Good point. At least Google Plus failed and we have some difference in there. Yeah, it's a, it's a great example of where they leverage their monopoly power in search to try and build dominance in social and it wasn't enough right there were there was every incentive in the world if you wanted i, I don't know if you remember but if you wanted a small business uh, account your google maps account your youtube account your gmail account everything your android account they were all connected to google plus and so everybody was forced to have one but google just could not get engagement into the social 
connection area of that. There was something about it I remember just didn't, for me, didn't click. Like I was in some one or two circles or something just because I knew someone who was really into Google. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it didn't work. So now you've started SparkToro. When did you actually start working on it? You said two years ago but it's launched in April this year. Yeah, exactly. So we, let's see, I left Moz the end of February in 2018 and started SparkToro the next day, the 1st of March, and spent the first few months organizing and fundraising for the company and then brought my co-founder on board, Casey Henry, who does all the technology stuff and engineering. And Casey basically spent about a year, maybe 10 months, nine, 10 months building the very first kind of alpha version. We had that prepared and folks could start to play with it. A few of our investors were playing with it in, was that February, March of 2019. And then we literally spent almost the entire rest of that year beta testing, inviting more and more groups to play with the tool and seeing where they could get value and then changing it, improving the data, improving the UI and UX, trying to get better at, at things like how we explained the tool, how we talked about it. And in the meantime, we were building up this big email marketing list because I was doing lots of conference speaking and events before all of that got taken away from the world and doing a lot of content marketing, building up an, an audience for the product, getting people aware of the company and, and the problem we were attempting to tackle. And it, yeah, ended up building, I think over the course of about 18 months, we had about 20,000 people who signed up for a, hey, notify me when you launch, I'm interested in this, or I want to get beta access, that kind of thing. And then we did our first paid invites in February of this year, 2020. So awful timing, like the worst timing possible, right? Well, let's, let's launch at the start of the pandemic when no one can pay any attention to us in the worst economic climate in 90 years. So did you leave Moz with the idea already? Or did you? I knew that I wanted to start a company in the web marketing software space. I would say that I, I did want to tackle this idea of where can you go do marketing that's not just throwing money at Facebook and Google, mm -hmm. right? So that was a goal of mine. I, I also really wanted to help, I don't know what, what you want to call it, like the world of small publishers and sources of influence. So I want you, Ben, right? I want your How the F podcast to get people reaching out to you and saying like, how do I sponsor you? How do I become a guest on your show? I want that across the whole internet so that publishers, creators, people with publications and channels aren't exclusively reliant on Facebook and Google for all their revenue and income. My ideal world, right, in a world where SparkToro is a much more influential, well-used company, who knows, maybe years from now, it's a place where people go to find their audiences and reach out directly to the publications that can help them reach those audiences. And that does not mean monopoly dominance for these big advertising firms. So that's like a really clear why, but what's your, say that one minute pitch for what value SparkToro brings to a marketer? SparkToro's at the core level, it's basically discover what your audience reads, watches, listens to, follows, engages with, and those behavioral attributes, which can be garnered from public web and social activity. That's all we do. We just crawl the web, kind of like Google does. We crawl the web, we assemble profiles, anonymized profiles of tens of millions of people on the internet, and then we 
aggregate that behavior and say, oh, look, we have 4,672 people in the United States whose profile includes the word uh, landscape architect and 11% of them follow this podcast. Okay, there you go. You want to reach landscape architects in the United States? That's mm. the podcast to get on. So for example, 27.5% of the people who follow you engage with John Hall's profile on one or more social networks. So interesting to be able to find out that kind of information. But so that kind of data, and then you, you can go down the list, right? So if you're looking for, hey, where do I reach more people like the people I already reach? This is a great way to use it. You plug in your own social profile or your own website and you see what data SparkToro has about that and then you can yeah here I'll if I could pick like a, an influencer who does a similar podcast around marketing I can find out where their audience hangs out and yeah them. exactly or you could say oh I know I want to reach more people in digital transformation so let me look for people who use the hashtag digital transformation and see what sources of influence they pay attention to right so SparkToro has like 53,000 people who use the hashtag digital transformation in the last 120 days. And it's no surprise, Gartner and Forrester and CIO.com and Tech Republic and th those sorts of sources. Yeah. God, it's, uh, I think it's going to be, I think incredible for people who, yeah, ever, any kind of marketer is going to need, going to want something like that for sure. Um, like, My hope uh, is right that, and, and I don't say this to be too promotional because Ben, I think you saw, you can use the tool for free, right? So you can run 10 searches a month for free and, and get all that analysis. And if you want more, there's a bunch of paid plans. But my hope is that lots of folks are able to saliently, cogently answer the question, where can I reach the audience that I want to reach without just throwing money at Google and Facebook? And, and being able to do that in really intelligent, numbers-driven ways. So if, if, oh, okay, gosh, yeah, 24% of the digital transformation audience is engaging with Gartner and 18% with, but God, there's this influential data scientist at Booz Allen, Kirk Bourne, and I know someone who knows him. He's followed by 12% of that audience. Shoot, I should just, I should reach Kirk. Let me get an intro to him. And that that can potentially help get my, whatever it is, new AI product in front of all the right people that I want to be in front of. Or, oh man, a bunch of them read MIT Technology Review and they take pitches. I could pitch a piece to MIT MITTechnologyReview.com. Let me do that. Oh man, and a bunch of them, boy, a bunch of them are reading Antonio Grasso, who's like a startup mentor. 11%. I could reach those folks. I don't have to spend $50,000 with Gartner to get I, I can go to all these other sources and reach similar sizes of audiences in this way. Here's this IPFC online, this conference that I can reach out to for try and get a pitch for their digital event next month. Yeah, yeah. The options are really exciting when you expand your horizons beyond which search ads do I need to buy and how much money do I need to spend with Facebook. It's, it's pretty exciting. And what I love about it is I want all those sources, I think we all do, I want all those sources to get our money and our time and attention. Mm -hmm. Google does not need any more help. Facebook doesn't need any more help. They're doing great. They're doing so amazing because <laughs> transferred billions of dollars of ex additional wealth to those companies. But all yeah. these small publishers, they could really use it. I think I have been and I'm in this situation with a company I work for as well. Like it's, we don't know. It's so easy to just throw some money at Google or even a LinkedIn advert and just, yeah. you know, you'll reach your audience, but actually 
if you realize that 10% of customer experience managers listens to this podcast and you can pay a hundred pounds to get on there, you've saved yourself oh. tons of money getting in front of them. Yeah. Amazing. And if, if you're, depending on what you're doing, it might even be a sponsorship or, Hey, let me get an introduction to that person. Or let me have a friend of mine who knows them reach out and say, Hey, you should invite Ben on this podcast. He'd be a great guest. Holy yeah. crap. There you go. Free coverage. Amazing. Okay. That's yeah. It's great. I think I'm on board hundred <laughs> percent. So let's talk about like the marketing of Spark Toro then. So it's a good place to start because you literally just launched it. How are you growing brand awareness? How are you acquiring customers? What's the first place you started? Where are you going next? Uh, so our first, our first customers and revenue came from what I talked about a little earlier, the, the building of that beta list. So we, we had a call to action on, on the website, on the homepage and, and the product kind of teaser page for literally 18 months. The whole time we were building the product, we were teasing what we were building. And even though we were iterating on it a bunch in the back end and all the specifics weren't established, you know, what I've talked about with you today, essentially it's this pitch of find the places where your audience actually engages and see how to reach them and be able to get their email addresses, et cetera. That was the, the core product idea. And so we were pitching that concept and then had an email capture on all of these pages. And that built up a list of, I think it was about 18,000, somewhere between 18,000 and 20,000 folks prior to our launch, which was that email marketing, it is not sexy. It's not new. It's not super exciting, but it is incredibly powerful. I don't know if you've looked at the, the MailChimp open rates, but I think the average open rate is close to 25% still. Whatever, 25 years after email became popular, email open rates are around 25%. The average Facebook organic engagement rate on a page is 0.09%. Yeah, when you put it like that, relative. What are we doing? Why are you trying to do marketing on Facebook? Capture emails, get email addresses. That's where the money is. That's where the engagement is. That's where the attention is. And yeah, we basically sent some pre-launch invite emails, right? We invited people who were on that list to get an early version. We did not do a discount because we basically, we've both done SaaS companies previously and had some challenges with discounts. Uh, we did do a credit. And I think actually this was, it was suggested by one of our investors, Ben, and it worked really well. So essentially we, you, got, you got an email that said like, hey, for the next two weeks, we're giving you this credit of it was somewhere between a hundred dollars. I think it was a hundred dollars for most of the, for most of the list and plans at the time started at 150 and went up to $600. Mm -hmm. And so we basically said, Hey, here's a hundred dollar credit to use anytime in the next two weeks, if you want to give Spark Toro a spin. Okay. And so lots of people signed up and basically paid this a lower rate for their first month to test out the product. Inevitably we had very high churn in the second month, but a lot of people who found it valuable stuck with it. And then we used uh, a bunch of, I, I, I did essentially email outreach to each person who signed up. So if you sign up for SparkTor, even to this day, you'll get a personal email from me because I, I get a notification in my inbox that you've signed up and I'll go visit your website and see how you're using SparkToro. And I'll send you an email that's, oh my gosh, Ben, so great to see you. How's, how's the podcast going? That kind of thing. So you write that yourself. Yeah, yeah. I just do it myself. That's one of my all day work activities is, is just going and checking out all the people who use SparkToro and, and sending them a welcome email. And then through those conversations, 
we basically built up some stories of how people are using it, testimonials. I used that in our marketing and advertising and, and for the launch in April. And it was a pretty, it was a very nerve wracking time because the pandemic is taking over everything the economy's crashing. And Casey and I were like, oh my God, crap, maybe we should have raised more money. Maybe we should have been even more conservative with our spending, but it, it ended up working out very well. That's great. I can then ask you about how that went in a second. But what's the, so starting off, I think it's obviously like anyone's dream starting a company to have a big email list to launch to. What, so how did you, so you said like you put like some kind of call to action on the website. How did you get 18,000 people though to get? I think the three big things that we did were number one, content marketing. So I, I was putting out a lot of content, especially in 2018 and 2019. The content was not around the solution, like what sparked Toro is, the content was around the problem. So the problem I was highlighting that I was talking about was essentially this duopoly of advertising and marketing and how Facebook and Google were limiting your potential opportunities and success by, by focusing exclusively on them. Some of my most popular content for sure, no doubt about it, was I published a number of pieces analyzing clickstream data and looking at the distribution of where clicks were coming from and where they were going on the internet. So for example, I think one of my most popular pieces was less than half of all searches, Google searches now result in a click, right? So essentially that 50% mark had been crossed in the clickstream data. And now of the billions of searches that take place on Google every day, fewer than half of them resulted in a click to any website because Google was taking the traffic for themselves, sending it themselves. I also published data about how much of Google's search traffic went to various other websites. Google is the biggest winner or Alphabet owned company are the biggest winners from Google, YouTube, Google Maps, et cetera. They get the most traffic from Google of anybody. And pointing these things out helped create a sense in people's minds that, oh, this is a problem. I need to worry about how I'm doing my social and search marketing and whether I have other channels of opportunity because that those markets are getting away from me. I don't control and own that traffic. I need to think about how I can build up my own sources of influence that can send visitors to me. And that, that content helped drive a bunch of people there. The, the second thing for sure was social media marketing. I'm very active on LinkedIn and Twitter and those forms of engagement helped a lot. I obviously built up a big following on those platforms prior to leaving Moz, which helped for sure. Yeah. You didn't and start then the third zero. one. Oh, sorry. So you didn't start from zero with the, like, when you write a piece of content, it's like you have already a great following to launch to. Thing. Exactly. And that is so important, right? If I could impress upon startup founders, anything it is before you start your company, build your network and your expertise, because when you become a source of influence, even to a small group of people in a niche field, you have a tremendous amount more ability to amplify a message and to broadcast content and to attract visitors and to build a following and to get all the signals that you want, right? Links and followers and email addresses and those kinds of things. But then the, the third and last one for us was events and conferences. Those, those three, and I used events, honestly, Ben, not just as opportunities to get on stage and then pitch to people, but also an opportunity to tell the story of the problem. So I'd get on stages, I would talk about 
hey, here's the dangers of relying on Facebook and Google exclusively, and here's how to break out of that. And I, I talked about a bunch of opportunities outside of SparkToro because it didn't exist yet. And then also use those as opportunities to go and meet with agencies and in-house marketers and, and startups, um, sit down at their offices, tell them about the product we were building, ask them how they were solving that problem today. That research was huge in building what became SparkToro too, right? And, and I had some confidence from all those conversations and interviews that there were people really excited about what we were building. And there were people who really were struggling with this problem and spending a bunch of money trying to solve it. So then you can build in their feedback and iterate the product, but at the same time, get them on board for when you launch. Yeah, exactly. A combination of one-to-many and one-to-one mm. simultaneously in the process. And this was expensive. Like we, before we launched, we had spent uh, half of our investment, a little over half of our investment. So we raised 1.3 million and I believe we had about a little over $500,000 left when we first did our initial early access launch in February, March. And so that money was spent mainly on what? I get on it. Mainly on salaries and healthcare. So in the United States, healthcare is extremely expensive. I think we're next year, we're going to be spending like $8,000 a month just on healthcare for two of us, really? which is insane. Healthcare is the biggest thing that limits entrepreneurship in the United States, in my opinion, because nobody can leave their their company because it's so goddamn expensive. So yeah, literally we, we had to raise money so that we could afford to have healthcare, which is- And that, that's paying for the insurance of your, for your employees, is it? Exactly. For our employees, it's just the two founders, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have no employees. Okay. Yeah. So that's yeah. 8,000. Wow. Yeah. Super dumb. And obviously like the United States, when you think about it, it's just limiting everyone's economic opportunity by tying it to your employer or just letting you die of diseases, which the United States is also very good at as we've seen this year. Yeah, uh, probably shouldn't laugh at that, but it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a horrifying thing to laugh at, but it's also, it's so macabre, what else can you do but laugh? Yeah. And so healthcare, our salaries, we got very lucky. We worked with AWS, Amazon Web Services. They gave us a bunch of credits. So we've been able to use those to offset a lot of our costs. In the startup phase, we did pay for some APIs. We were using some data from JumpShot initially, and they obviously got shut down. And we, we had to pull that out of the product, but we've, we had to pay for a lot of data gathering sorts of stuff. And then my travel and hotels for events. Okay. Yep. Those were, those were the primary expenses we didn't do. We literally haven't spent any money on advertising yet. Okay. So you, your main way of reaching those people has been like events and conferences, but I think I, I, I would say, I, I think it goes content marketing, social events and conferences. Cool. As either your LinkedIn post or another podcast that you're talking about the amount of podcasts that you go on and use their audiences to grow your own. Since, since launch, podcasts have been huge for us. Really huge. Because a lot of people will, which I'm very flattered, right? A lot of people will reach out and say, hey, would you be on my podcast to talk about whatever startup stuff or technology stuff or marketing stuff? And you know, I love having conversations like this and meeting people like you. And I, I, I find it really fun. And it also tends to be a great way for people to like learn about Spark and then have a get value in, in a bunch of ways like, oh, I can learn from whatever Rand's talking about with marketing stuff and I'll go give a free SparkToro account. That's definitely a great way of growing is through other people's audiences. 
I have two more questions before we close up. And the first one I think is really about the future of marketing. And for people listening and new marketers, especially, if you were going back to, you know, in your first five years of marketing, what skills would you advise people to invest in, in terms of personal growth and, and expertise at the moment? Yeah, I would urge you to go niche. Right? I think that building up a niche skill set, like not just, oh, I'm great at social media marketing, but I'm great at social media marketing for B2B brands reaching executives. Awesome. <laughs> like now you're in it. Or I am amazing at social media marketing to the finance niche, which finance and social don't often go together. But if you're great at it, fantastic. So I think that level of niche expertise is really the way to go, especially because many of the high level topics have already been claimed by a lot of sources. There's a ton of competition. It's hard to get known in those places, much easier to get known in a niche. And then the second thing I would try and build up is your network. Just people who know your name, have emailed with you, had a positive experience with you, you help them accomplish something, they feel indebted to you, positive toward you, your name is a brand to them. If when they see your name in their inbox, they go, oh, how nice to hear from you, Ben. That's a huge win. That's exactly what you want. And, and the more people that you can get to feel that way about you, the better. And what's wonderful is this is a win because in order to do that, you have to put positive things out into the world. You have to help people. And what, what could be better than that? That's yeah. when capitalism really works well, is the incentive of, oh, I should help other people so that they like me and trust me and feel good about my interactions with them. That's a great thing. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, it's totally true as well. I get a lot of people messaging me asking me why I do this podcast or, you know, why I create the playbooks that I create. And really the answer is like, I get a lot out of it. I learn a lot from it. And the immediate result for me isn't isn't money and isn't the incentive it's all those relationships that i build yeah giving without thought of return and earning people's trust and their brand awareness of you is huge that is exactly what i encourage other people because people are a bit suspicious like when is when are you going to monetize this uh, don't worry it'll happen eventually i will find some way to leverage the audience that i've built the beautiful thing is if you're doing it authentically there's nothing there's no negative ramification. I don't think anybody's upset. Oh, Rand, how dare you collect my email address and then message me about your new product? I think people are like, oh, cool. You have a new product. Like, I, thanks for, I, way I, to go. Good for you. Good luck. Well, like you stole their email from someone. I think this, if you are going out and buying email lists, you're going to have a problem. If yeah. you are collecting those emails because people gave them to you because they want to know what you're up to, mm -hmm. hey, that's a win. Yeah, definitely. Okay, one final quick question, and that's, really a tip for every marketer out there i want to ask you what is the untapped opportunity in marketing right now maybe five years ago it would have been invest in building a network on linkedin uh, even now i think that's um, one of the important things that you should be doing but what is the thing that you see happening that you're going to jump on yourself that a lot of people aren't doing yet I think this has been an opportunity for a long time, but it's been untapped all the way around, Just which, which really surprises me, and that is episodic content. Mm. So essentially, podcasts are in the world of episodic content, but I think of it the way Chris Savage from Wistia describes it, which is Netflix-style 
story content creation, where you are producing, regularly producing content that engages people and consistently improves and consistently builds an audience. And if they like one episode, they're going to go back and check out the whole catalog and they're going to subscribe to the future catalog. I think that is really, really compelling because even if you only have a very small audience when you start out, over time, you build a flywheel that keeps turning with decreasing friction, right? Keeps attracting more and more people with less and less effort or the same amount of effort put in. If you can find uh, some way of doing episodic content, whether that's a video series, a blog series, could be a series of white papers, could be a research series. Maybe it's a series of presentations you do once a quarter every year. Maybe it's a, yeah, maybe it's a podcast. It could be numerous things. It could be your social channels that you're using as episodic content production, but That's doing it in that way that there's a catalog of back content and there's a forward-looking subscription to the future and there's a consistency that's really remarkable for building up audiences. That's interesting. Yeah, that makes total sense. Is that kind of what you've done with the Whiteboard Fridays? Yeah, that- Whiteboard Friday unintentionally it was a perfect example of episodic content that worked really well. And I'm essentially trying to do, I think I need to find a new version of that for SparkToro. And some of that has been the research and data publications that I've done over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think there's huge opportunity there. We're, we're trying to figure out a good like email onboarding series that helps people get the most out of a free account on SparkToro. We're going to be testing that pretty soon. There's, there's a lot to do when you're starting a new company. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to seeing your new episodic content. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you very much for coming on. Like, it's been great talking to you. Really yeah, great talking with you too. And I wish you all the best with the podcast.